A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front lines as Russian reinforcements build up in the Donbass amid Ukrainian warnings of an upcoming offensive. And it's a pleasure to welcome back to The Telegraph, Gabriela Yuzviak, to update us on her work looking at the impact of the war on Ukrainian children. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 7th of February, day 349. And to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and children-focused freelance journalist Gabriela Yuzviak. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David, and hi, everybody. So let's start off in the Donbass. So Sergei Haidai, the Ukrainian governor of Luhansk, says that Russia is pouring reinforcements into the area ahead of this anticipated new offensive, which uh, is suggested could be as early as next week. I'll come on to that in a moment. But Sergei Haidai is saying, quote, we are seeing more and more Russian reserves being deployed in our direction. We are seeing more equipment being brought in. They bring ammunition that is used differently than before. It is not round-the-clock shelling anymore. They are slowly starting to save, getting ready for a full-scale offensive. It will most likely take them 10 days to gather reserves. After February the 15th, we can expect this offensive at any time, unquote. Now, I mean, you could say, well, has the offensive started already because Russia have not been conducting combined arms manoeuvre, as in infantry with tanks and artillery and all the other bits and pieces that go up to make a a military force. They've just been pushing manpower forward, seemingly looking for any weaknesses in Ukraine's lines. And then those weaknesses have been exploited where possible, if possible, by more experienced Russian soldiers. So you you could argue that that's all they're able to do at the moment because they have they are running out of of equipment. So has the offensive started, or is there going to be another big push anytime from next week? A moot point. I mean, certainly moot point if you're a Ukrainian soldier in a trench fending this off right now. But that those comments do support the assessment by Alexei Reznikov, the defence minister, Ukraine's defence minister. Uh, so February the fifth, just a few days ago. He was saying the offensive is likely to start around February the 24th. We know Russia likes marking anniversaries or marking special dates. And obviously February the 24th is a year since this this phase of the war started. So that's that's looking looking likely. Um, Mr. Reznikov also said that there are no signs of any Russian offensive groups in uh, Kharkiv or Chernihiv to the north, uh, Belarus further, well, further, further to the north. And Ukrainian Southern Operational Command spokesperson Natalia Humenyuk also agreed, saying that Russian forces are not, they don't seem to be massing in the south, heads on, and that, and that area, Zaporizhia, uh, and they're likely concentrating for offensive forces in the east. So what's happening here, I think, is that Russia are racing to do something before the arrival of the, the, the latest Western gifted equipment, particularly the tanks and the infantry fighting vehicles. That is somewhat borne out um, if I could just move on to, to today's British Defence Intelligence update, it's kind of borne out by 
by their their update today. So UK, the, the MOD, British MOD, are saying, quote, it is highly likely that Russia has been attempting to restart major offensive operations in Ukraine since early January 2023. Now, a brief segue, if I may. What does highly likely mean? That comes from the British intelligence community's um, professional head of intelligence assessment yardstick. Right. Let me let me go on about that. So the professional head of intelligence assessment was a post established in 2005. The post, which is an individual, is a a person and the uh, associated small team is part of Britain's joint intelligence organization. And that leads on the development of, of the intelligence community's analysis here in here in Britain. So the PHIA, the professional head of intelligence assessment, is the is the head of the intelligence analysis profession, which extends across the intelligence agencies. It's in um, other agencies, such as the National Crime Agency. It's in the, the policing. So the yardstick that they use is one of the is one of the tools, one of the professional tools they use um, uh, to to explain their work. And the the intelligence analysis profession across Whitehall, across the British the British government estate. Uh, numbers about 1700 intelligence analysts so they've all got to understand what they're saying they've all got to have a common language to be able to express to ministers and others what they feel about certain pieces of information so they've come up with this with this yardstick and just very briefly um, they've said that less than five percent they describe as a remote chance 10 to 20 percent highly unlikely 25 to 30 percent is unlikely 40 to 50 there's a realistic possibility is the language they would use um, up to 75% likely or possibly probably, or they, they might use the word probably, 80 to 90% is, is highly likely, and then over, over 90% almost certain. So those are the kind of words they would use. So when they say it is highly likely Russia has been attempting to restart major offensive operations in Ukraine since early January, the figure they would put on that is 80 to 90%. Now, of course, none of this is is exact. It's all more art than science but it gives it gives us an idea of of how confident they are um as i say the post was established in 2005 that date you know not long after the old dodgy dossier in iraq and what have you when intelligence assessments were really put under the cosh and how do you explain these things and how do you how do you have confidence how do you the, the recipient of that intelligence product have confidence in the words that you're being given um, that's where this thing comes from uh, so just yes, yeah, a slight segue there. But back to today's defence intelligence report, they're saying it's um, Russia's operational goal is almost certainly to capture the remaining Ukrainian-held parts of Donetsk Oblast. But Russian forces have only managed to gain several hundred metres of territory each week, which is what we've been reporting for the last uh, last few weeks now. And they are saying defence intelligence is saying this is almost certainly because Russia now lacks the munitions and manoeuvre units required for successful offensives. Munitions we've talked about, their lack of manoeuvre units we've talked about, as in they, they're just running at, running at the Ukrainians, they're not doing it properly. But UK Defence Intelligence then goes on to say senior commanders, this is senior Russian commanders, likely make their plans requiring undermanned, inexperienced units to achieve unrealistic objectives due to political and professional pressure. Russian leaders will likely continue, likely being 55% to 75%, Russian leaders will likely continue to demand sweeping advances. It remains unlikely, brackets, 25% to 35%, it remains unlikely that Russia can build up the forces needed to substantially affect the outcome of the war within the coming weeks. Right, a lot of red meat there, for which I apologise, but I just wanted to give you an idea of, of what the intelligence assessment is of the the state of the war at the moment in the Donbass and what's likely to come next and how certain they are, having looked at any number of different intelligence products and sources and all the rest of it that we don't get to see, but they boil it down to these kind of phrases, likely, highly likely, and so on. But if, as they are saying, Russia are making their plans based on unrealistic objectives with political and professional pressure, then that is not a way to win a war. Of course, They've got a huge mass. They've got these mobilised um, uh, mobilised soldiers coming through now, hundreds of thousands of them, we think, about 200,000. So that, that is a, a, a considerable number of fighters. But again, if they are not doing it properly and Ukraine are able to get their defence uh, intact, a proper defence, um, maybe we should do another deep dive on defence and what that, what that looks like, then you know, it does not augur well for Russia if they are, if they are 
bowing to political pressure and are not using um, maneuver units and not linking the infantry and the tanks and all the other bits and pieces. So that was a, a, a deep dive into into today's defence intelligence analysis and, and well, what the figures mean. Apologise, I apologise for the uh, for all the, the deep wonkies, and we might might all have to go back and listen to that bit again. But um, we do use these terms regularly, so I thought it was worth just just sort of chipping in again and explaining where these numbers come from. I will because I need to take a pause there. Thanks, Tom. I just have a very quick question, if if you don't mind, but maybe I'll take a few seconds just to let you catch your breath. But you mentioned there that the the British military intelligence think that you know there's a lack of manoeuvre units, that the, the, there's the Russian military are under huge political professional pressure to capture their operational objectives, so the rest of Luhansk and Donetsk. I was wondering, from your perspective, if you think that we, we have any sense of what this offensive may look like. Do we think that there might be different tactics, different strategy? It, I'd be curious as to your professional opinion on that. Well, I, there should be. There should be from Russia new new tactics and new strategy because it, it didn't work last time. The sort of running running at the Ukrainian lines hoping for the best just didn't, well, has not worked out at all for the last year. There has been no evidence that Russia has been doing combined arms training in Belarus or, or elsewhere in Russia or Ukraine. We've not seen that. I think that would have been visible to Western intelligence agencies, the amount of SIGINT, signals intelligence and other intelligence surveillance reconnaissance aircraft that are doing laps around the Black Sea and up and down the the border with uh, Belarus and Russia. I think they would have had um, indicators and warnings of big combined arms, like brigade or divisional sized training, brigade being about 2,000 people with tanks and all sorts and a division three of those, so at least 6,000 people i think they would have i think they would have known that and then i think they would have put out one of these defense intelligence assessments saying there's a realistic possibility 40 to 50 percent or it is uh, highly likely 80 to 90 percent that they have been conducting such training so i think we would have heard by now albeit in an obfuscated manner and um there there has seemingly not been that and of course we just we think Russia's just running out of kit. We know they're trying to source artillery shells from uh, North Korea. We know they're trying to get these Shahid 136 drones from Iran. Um, they're also trying to backfill, we think, ballistic missiles from Iran. But, I mean, it takes ages to build a, a brigade's worth of tanks and other stuff, which is why they've been raiding the old stocks, the old T-62s that, as the name suggests, was designed, built in the 60s. I mean, this is old, old kit, not, not really fit for modern use so i don't think they've been doing any kind of proper um combined arms training i think we would have known if they had that is what they need to do they just seem to be doubling down trebling down on this tactic of using mass and and human waves looking for those gaps in the in the ukrainian lines um so so no i'm i'm uh i'm confident that we are not going to see anything new from Russia less the application of extreme mass and low morality. But of course extreme mass and high numbers of men can can be a successful tactic in, in of itself and maybe we'll come back to that later we've got a few questions from listeners on that but Francis Sternley can I come to you next for our diplomatic and political updates? Thanks, David, and good afternoon to our listeners around the world. Before covering those usual political and diplomatic updates, I want to return to the issue of malign Russian influence off the back of our examination into Russia's spy in Germany yesterday. There have been two interesting reports published in this space. The first, a big investigation by the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. That's the OCCRP. They claim that for years, a secret organisation run from inside Russia's parliament has successfully interfered with European policies on occupied Ukraine. This is off the back of several leaked email chains that they talk about in depth in the report. And I should say that what I'm doing here is offering a very, very brief summary of what is in a very detailed report and that I would recommend listeners check out themselves. So from these leaked emails, it gives a new overview of the operation and shows how European Union politicians particularly have helped to push Moscow's agenda by being offered cash and perks. Now, 
in the report, there's a certain Duma insider who supposedly built a network of analysts, of journalists and others who helped to push the Kremlin's interests abroad. It involves individuals from, and particularly from politicians from Germany, Austria, Italy, Czech Republic and Poland. Some of them were flown on expensive junkets to pro-Russia events in occupied Crimea, for instance, and also others were offered cash uh, or offering cash to European politicians to propose pro-Russian motions in their local legislatures and paid far-right activists to publish pro-Kremlin articles in European media outlets. Now, I think it's important to emphasise that we're not necessarily talking about the most senior politicians, members of parliament, etc. It's it's people who are slightly lower down the ladder, but of course their influence is still significant. Uh, they're the sort of people who sometimes are say, writing the articles on behalf of the MPs or they're doing things that are still significant in local legislatures as opposed to national ones. So I don't wish to downplay the significance of them by them being local, but I don't want people to get the impression that this is an endemic and systematic corruption across all of the uh, EU. It's not, it's not really about that. It's more talking more interestingly about the subtle ways in which these things are done. And it may even be possible that some people who were involved in this didn't quite realise that they were accepting cash effectively being funneled in from the Kremlin, that they thought they were being funded by another organisation that may advocate for a certain policy that they're also sympathetic with. And as part of that support, then they may have written something or proposed something that actually aids the Kremlin's uh, in, in initiatives in that respective country. So as ever, it's more complicated than perhaps the headline suggests. So... Uh, that's that report, which, as I say, I would recommend that people do read. It's very long, and it's on their website. And there's been quite a considerable comment on it in the last day or so since it's been published. I've just had the time to, to work through it this morning. The second report uh, relates specifically to Britain, but I think it talks to a systematic problem that is not just a case in Britain, uh, but is uh, across uh, many Western countries. This is a report from Transparency, Transparency International UK, they are saying that almost 52,000 UK properties are owned by anonymous investors, including some who are close to the Kremlin. Now, this comes off the back of the government here launching a new Register of Overseas Entities report, which requires foreign companies to declare the ultimate beneficiary of any property they hold in the UK. That's, of course, partly the government trying to combat the uh, influence of Russian investors in London particularly, and this is all part of the broader sanctioning programme that was instigated after the invasion of uh, Ukraine. But uh, its findings, as, as I say, are that actually despite this legal crackdown, the money is still coming in from shell companies, tax havens and ownership structures that are rather opaque, to say the least. They argue that more than a fifth or £1.5 billion have been ploughed into property with suspect funds from Russia, including those subject to sanctions and close to the Kremlin. So the, the combined value of these properties is around £6.7 billion, and it's particularly, unsurprisingly, luxury London real estate. But it speaks, I think, to what is, as I say, a deeper problem and untangling, untangling this complex web of, uh, of, of how these investments are made is, is, is a months, sometimes year long pro, um, process, even for each individual case. So this is the problem is that once the rot is set in, it's very, very difficult to combat this. So I think both of these reports really are emphasizing that if the West is, is serious about extricating itself from Russian money and influence, there is an immense challenge here, and both of these reports speak to the scale of that, that challenge. The first step, of course, however, is shining a light on that activity. So a credit to the journalists and researchers who've put these reports together. It's not easy research, but both are very interesting, and I hope will have some influence on, on these spaces. Brilliant. Thank you, Francis. Anything more from you before we go to Gabby? Well, I'll just cover the political updates quickly then. Um, there's not too much to say, but there's an interesting piece I saw uh, that's come out of the White House, which is saying that the US Vice President Kamala Harris will travel to the Munich Security Conference next week. That'll, of course, be important in terms of the timing because it's just days before the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, uh, they've, they've released a statement that said the vice president's engagements in Munich will demonstrate transatlantic unity and resolve U.S. global leadership and our enduring commitment to supporting Ukraine. We understand there will be a speech and that she will meet with several significant foreign leaders. 
And uh, then it will obviously in some way be, I imagine there'll be some announcements off the back of it being the anniversary. It's quite rare for there to be a senior politician of that standing going somewhere and not making any kind of significant announcement. Um, I should just add that the Munich Security Conference, for those who are wondering what it is, it's a major international security conference that's held annually in Germany. It sort of acts as a key forum on security policy for NATO and EU member countries. Quite how significant it will be this year, of course, remains to be seen, given that we've just had Rammstein. So it may be that it's a little bit more of a talking shop this year, but who knows? And of course, now that the vice president is going to be there, that will lead to more significant comment. Uh, just another cu couple of stories in the sort of diplomatic political space. I was quite struck by one that's being reported uh, from Switzerland, which is that Switzerland is close, apparently, to breaking with its centuries of tradition as a neutral state, as support for Ukraine is putting pressure on the government to end its ban on exports of Swiss weapons to war zones. Now, I, I won't go into all of the nuances of this, but uh, Swiss famously, uh, Switzerland is a famously a neutral country. It dates back to 1815, I think, so the end of Napoleonic Wars, Waterloo. And as part of that, Switzerland does not send weapons directly or indirectly to combatants at war buyers of Swiss arms are legally prevented from re-exporting them. So this is, this is a big deal. But following the invasion of Ukraine, there have been increasing calls from the public and from Switzerland's EU neighbours to allow these transfers to Kyiv to go ahead. And what's most important is that part two of the security committees of the Swiss parliament have now recommended that the rules be eased as well. But as one can imagine, given this long history, lawmakers remain divided on the issue. But nonetheless, I do think it speaks to a strength of feeling in Europe that perhaps is uh, underappreciated in, in a country, or with regard to a country, should say, such as Switzerland, because, as I say, I think a lot of people just assume that they'd stay out of this. And just lastly, because it speaks to the ripple effect that this war, of course, is happening, having on, uh, on weapons and geopolitics. Taiwan are said to be speeding up their development of drones for military use, taking into the account of the lessons of the war in Ukraine so far and the increasing threat posed by China. Of course, these uh, unmanned aircraft, which we've spoken about at length now for months, have played a really critical role on both sides since the invasion. And clearly, Taiwan facing a growing threat from China in the coming uh, years is now believing that it's trying to learn the lessons from what happened in Ukraine and in order to to, to, stru to structure a more efficient and effective defence strategy. The Taiwanese Defence Ministry spokesman has said, and I'll quote, responding to the present enemy threat and using the general experience of drones in the Ukraine-Russia war in order to construct an asymmetric combat power for our country's drones, the Defence Ministry is speeding up research and development and production of various drones. So as I say, just reiterating the manner in which this war is having impact already on how countries are viewing war and what modern wars will look like, but also speaks as well, I think, to the increasing feeling in the Pacific, as we've touched on recently, uh, that, that China is on the move. And of course, the balloon saga, which perhaps we'll touch on again at some point, may also uh, feed into that. So lots going on, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis. And we'll come back to both of you before the end of this episode. Um, Kevin Yuzviak, it's wonderful to welcome you back to The Telegraph. We actually, uh, we, we had you on back in, I think it was November, so quite a few months ago, to talk about how the full-scale invasion is impacting the needs of children in Ukraine. That's young people, children, babies. You've been looking into that. It's been a, a big part of your work for the last year. Uh, and uh, we've had some conversations since you came on the podcast. So, so it very, feels like a very good time to bring you back. So would you just, to, for our listeners, just reintroduce yourself and the work you do? Hi, thanks very much for having me back. So yes, I'm a freelance journalist who specialises in writing about children in the UK and um, across the world, and mainly children who are disadvantaged. And as you say, since the war broke out in February, I've been reporting on how it's been affecting children for The Telegraph and for other national and international publications. Um, and in particular, I've been looking at how war-induced trauma is affecting young children. That's because I received some funding from a project at the Columbia Journalism School in New York called the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma. Um, and I went to Ukraine in, in June last year to, to interview and meet children in all sorts of different places, in kindergartens, in schools, in lots of camps and shelters for internally displaced families, in orphanages and hospitals, and just find out how children were coping. And can you just recap uh, your, your, your takeaways from your last appearance on the podcast? What are the big issues faced by uh, children in Ukraine and indeed children who have left Ukraine? There's quite a few. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much to say on the subject. Pretty much every aspect of a child's life in Ukraine, all the children, as you say, who have left, has been turned upside down. And that's been the case for almost a whole year now. So you can imagine the impact that's having. Last time I came on, I began with some statistics to give listeners a bit of a picture of the situation. So before the war, Ukraine had a population of 7.5 million children. And the estimates from UNICEF are that about 2 million children have left Ukraine now and about 2.5 million are internally displaced within the country and children are in danger just as much as adults even if they're not being sent to the front line. The latest UN figures state that that at least 438 children have been killed and 842 children have been injured and that's between the 24th of February last year when the war began and the 29th of January this year. That's an average of about four children being killed or injured per day. But as UNICEF also adds is that these are just the verified figures and the toll is likely to be far higher. So last time I told listeners about the fact that when I speak to families and children in Ukraine, really the biggest concern, the thing that I'll talk about most is is the loved ones that they're missing and their feeling of not being safe. Obviously there's thousands of children whose fathers and sometimes mothers are fighting in the military. Just to illustrate that for you, I wanted to tell you about a boy who is 13, who um, what his teacher told me about him actually, he's a student in Lviv in western Ukraine. And she said, uh, for example, his dad is in the military and there was a time where the father was sent on a specific mission and he wasn't able to contact the family to let him know that he was okay and he just just, kind of disappeared for sort of two weeks and you can imagine that child is just trying to get on with his daily life as things are in a war zone and trying to do his lessons and hang out with his friends but all the time at the back of his mind he's wondering is that phone ever going to ring is my dad ever going to say that he's come back from that mission that he's okay and, and this is the kind of state of anxiety that thousands of children are in every day in Ukraine. And of course, there are lots of children who, whose fathers haven't made that phone call and who are dealing with grief, and whether that's a family member or a neighbour or a friend. And that comes on top of the, the risk to children's own lives and the fear that they feel every time an air raid siren goes off. And we've seen, you know, towards the end of last year, increased air raid sirens going off, increased attacks on on, on infrastructure, which means that, that accommodation and homes are being hit. So there's, there's a real risk now. Children are hearing gunfire and explosions. That makes them very jumpy. It makes them hard to relax. You know, these are difficult emotions for an adult to process, let alone a child. I also mentioned last time how important it is for children to have a trusted adult that they can turn to, especially very young children who don't understand you know, what is going on and why life has changed so much. But in the context of war, obviously parents and carers are coping with their own trauma, so it's especially hard for them to keep putting on a brave face. Um, and that's particularly the case for those families who have, have fled to different parts of Ukraine who are living on handouts, who've now been living for months in temporary accommodation, who still don't know where their lives are going, who perhaps haven't been able to find a job. Just to illustrate that, I was speaking to a charity called Street Child, a British charity that's working in Ukraine. They told me about a boy called Ivan, who's eight, and he fled from Kharkiv with his mother, and she enrolled him in a local school, so he's living in one of the western regions now. But you know, this is an example, even though he's now kind of in a, in a safer space, he's just so traumatised by what he's been through that he, he can't bear to leave her. And every time she tried to drop him off at school, he just cried and he was showing signs of anxiety and tension. And on top of that, he comes from a part of the country where it's mainly Russian speaking. So he was also unable to communicate with children in the local area. And this is something I saw when I was there. It's very frustrating for a child not to be able to communicate. That's one of the things that really triggers bad behaviour in children. Um, but then amongst the older children, you know, they understand what Russia is doing and it can provoke prejudice. And I even heard of teenagers getting into fights. You know, there's so much going on in children's lives. But fortunately, in Ivan's case, he was supported by the charity and he received some art therapy and help and he's beginning to feel a bit safer and make some friends now. Um, so my, the final thing I want to talk about, and this is really what I'd like to, to come to today, is education, because that is the, the massive challenge in Ukraine. Back in September, the Ukrainian government made this enormous effort to reopen schools and restart learning, this real valiant kind of new front in the war to stop children's futures being destroyed. 
but the big problem is safety. And so in order for a school to reopen, the government said that the school had to be able to provide a safe shelter for children during air raids. Many schools simply don't have a big enough basement or a safe place for all the children in the school. So some of them can access public shelters or what many of them have done is, is operate a timetable where you have half of the school population coming in one week and then the next week they're at home doing online learning and that way everyone gets a bit of of face-to-face time well thank you very much for that that rundown gabby um just a just one question for me really what we're now nearly a year after the start of the full-scale invasion have the have the main needs for children changed much i mean you've touched on it a little bit there and what are the main challenges providing and getting what the children need to them in in sometimes in the war zone in ukraine Yeah, so all the issues I've talked about still exist. And as time goes on, those are just becoming more ingrained. I mean, particularly children's mental health. The longer that children feel like they're in an unsafe place, the more their brains will learn that this is their natural state of being. Um, They develop a kind of flight or fright reaction to things. In fact, UNICEF told me that they're estimating at the moment 1.5 million children are at risk of depression, anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder which is really serious and really needs you know, acute intervention. And uh, the only way you can start treating children in that sort of state is to get them to a safe place. Having normality in their lives and some focus can make all the difference. And that's why going to school or attending a preschool is so important. But as you've mentioned, you know, it is becoming more difficult to, to go to school these days. Um, in November, I told you that um, 2,768 educational institutions had suffered bombing or shelling. Now, that number has gone up significantly since then. Yesterday, the Ukrainian government's official tally was 3,075. So that's more than 300. Sorry, that's more than 300 more schools or preschools that have been hit in just under three months. You can imagine that parents are reluctant to send their children to school with that kind of thing going on. Um, So this is why online learning has become so important. But this is one of the big, big challenges. Um, I actually got in touch with the Ministry of Education and Science in Ukraine. They said that they currently estimate 1.6 million children are learning purely online um, in in the country. And there are five regions where none of the schools have reopened for face-to-face learning. So Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Luhansk, Kharkiv and Kherson. But it's not as easy as it sounds, you know, parents in England or in Europe or listeners across the world that, that had to do home learning during COVID will will have some knowledge of this, but it's very different over there. First of all, there's you know a, a blackout. A blackout can happen at any time. There are scheduled periods of time when the power is off. So yes, sure, you can charge up your laptop or your phone ahead of that in preparation to, to log on to whatever lessons you've got for that day. But sometimes you know that device will just run out of power or, or it's unplanned and you haven't got any power, so you can't do your lesson. Um, and then, of course, the other big problem is the air raids. So as soon as the air raid alarm goes off, children are expected to go down to a shelter or to a safe place in their home, and and, and, and so is the teacher if they're teaching from home, and that's the end of that lesson for the day. Um, I actually got a, had a really interesting conversation with a, a member of Save the Children, a member of staff there called Svevolod Prokofiev, um, who lives in Kiev, and he's their communications manager, and he told me that he'd about a girl, a 14-year-old girl who lives with her parents in Dnipro. And he said that for her, he described her best friend at the moment as her mobile phone. He said she uses her smartphone to log on to her lessons and to speak to her friends. She has to take shelter in her basement two or even four times a day, sometimes for an hour at a time or longer when the air raids go off. He said that she's having little interaction sort of real life situations and that she's just becoming increasingly isolated and he's seen that among other children as well and on top of that he's saying that that she and other children are just simply falling behind on their learning because I mean how can you keep up if you're constantly being interrupted in that way every single day they get often what teachers do is they'll send materials to the to the pupils so that they can go away and read them and then do the work and then kind of send them back to the teachers so they don't have to be online the whole time but if a, if a child's not understanding that material they can't just ask the teacher a question as they could do if, if they were sitting in a classroom and on top of that he also explained how when the air raids go off and then the children are kind of stuck kind of waiting and waiting to come out again they then have to make up for the school time later in the day which means if they had planned any sort of activity like a sport or something outside that might have given them that bit of respite they can't do it <laughs> so um, and the other thing is sometimes it's just simply not safe to go outside 
yeah, it's a pretty grim picture for, for these children. So what I wanted to come on to is the fact that Yulia, this girl I've just described, in a way she's kind of lucky because she has got a smartphone because there's also children across the country that don't have devices. So imagine for them they, they've lost even this one potential lifeline of, of talking to teachers and their friends. Um, this is a huge priority for the Ministry of Education and Science and also um, the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. And they are coordinating um, imports of devices and laptops for all ministries in the country. I mean, everybody needs devices. It's not just children. You can imagine all the health services, all the hospitals, they all need devices. They told me, for example, that for children, they received 6,000 tablets from Korea last year, which were sent to regions where the largest proportion of children are learning online. And they said that Apple have also donated 5,000 iPads for children and teachers to the country. And there are lots of initiatives like this. There's also a huge European industry association called Digital Europe that's coordinating donations of laptops from thousands of companies in Europe um, with the European Commission and the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. I spoke to Chris Ruff, their Director for Political Outreach, and he told me that there is such an overwhelming need for this from Ukraine that even though he's organising these these laptops from commercial sources, on top of that, he and his colleagues have voluntarily set up collection points across Europe where individuals can donate their used devices. It launched in March. It's called laptopsforukraine.com. And they are hoping that by next month they will have gathered 50,000 devices to ship to the country. So I wanted to mention that in case any listeners from Europe are interested in trying to to put something into that. Unfortunately, listeners in Europe can't take part because the items are going to be delivered via the EU civil protection mechanism. Well, thank you very much, Gabby. Let's just stay on the topic of donations for a little bit, just because part of the reason we wanted to talk to you again is because you mentioned to us that since you came on the podcast back in November, um, you were struck by the number of donations, messages of support and actual support from from listeners. Um, And I thought it would be interesting. We've done this with several other organisations, actually, who've who've seen this, because I think it's very interesting and important for us to try and track the generosity of the listeners and just understand where money and time and effort actually goes um, to to try and track the story of aid from, from, from it from the beginning, from its beginning in, in an act of altruism to, to its end point. So can you talk to us a little bit about um, what happened after, after you came on the pod last time in November and, and what you've done with what listeners have said? Yeah, so really I was so surprised there was such a big response to, to, to our discussion in November. And we obviously published a list of, of child-focused organisations in Ukraine that people could donate to, which was by no means comprehensive. But I actually had people getting in touch directly, you know, really wanting to, to offer their sort of other thing, things other than money. So, for example, a man called uh, Dr. Simon Crick in Australia, who is a former physics teacher and now runs a company called Crooked Science, he wanted to ask if he could somehow... Um, connect schools in Australia with schools in Ukraine so that children could simply you know, talk online, exchange stories of their lives, just provide some sort of distraction from, from the, the daily life that they've got over there. So I put him in touch with um, Teach for Ukraine, which is an, an NGO that organises teacher training within schools. And they are, they are having discussions around that, but obviously there are challenges be- because of the power shortages I've just described. And also because... Um, these organisations are also so pressed, there's so much going on for them that it's hard for them to, to fit these extra bits in, but, but they are trying. So hopefully in a couple of months or so that might be up and running. And then as I was just describing that the need for devices and laptops, this is something that really seemed to strike a chord with listeners. And I had a man called Joshua Collins from a company in London called EcoWorld who said that he had about 75 company laptops lying around that he could donate. So he's currently in the process of figuring out the the legal aspects of that and wiping all the data from them. And then he asked me how can he get those into the hands of children in Ukraine. So I put him in touch with my contacts in UNICEF because I know that they have people across the border in Poland who can obviously it's easier to send things to Poland Polish side can receive it and then they can work out the logistics of getting it across but then there was another challenge because I had some people get in touch from Australia and shipping laptops from Australia to Poland is a bigger question <laughs> and one that I'm hoping maybe some answers might come from the listeners today because I've there's still there's a man called James Elliott in Melbourne he's trying to set up a, a collection to send hundreds of laptops to Ukraine but we're still trying to figure out how it could actually happen so I did have a chat with Chris about this, um, who I just mentioned from Digital Europe. And he said that as far as the Ukrainian government is concerned, they don't consider 
such items to be high security, but they are combustible and considered to be dangerous in terms of shipping because they have batteries. So that's one thing to consider. Um, he suggested that perhaps embassies might be able to help, so maybe that's the route. Or I'm just wondering if any listener out there has an idea. Does anybody out there want to set up a collection in the UK or in Australia? Perhaps someone's got some thoughts. Well, do let us know and we'll try and forward it on to, to Gabby or get in touch with Gabby directly. Gabby, just one more question from me. Generators have been a hugely important part of the story, in the last, few, especially in the last few months. We've usually seen generators in terms of keeping businesses afloat, letting Ukrainian businesses, uh, restaurants, um, people's homes, etc., et you know, get the energy they need to do what they want to do, to, to, to do the day-to-day. But they're also crucial for, for children and children's lives. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, exactly. So what I've been talking about in terms of education and how important it is for children to hopefully go into a school and have some face-to-face time with the teachers and their peers. So I think it's about a third of schools that are offering face-to-face education in the country, mainly over to the west and around Kiev. And then there are those schools, about a third again, who are offering the blended learning of online and offline. But it's in a freezing winter and you can't send children into a freezing cold school building with no heating or no power, no ways to cook their food, no lighting when there's blackouts. Um, It's a real problem and the regional authorities have prioritised educational institutions and they've been trying to hand out generators or grants to help these schools buy them. But it's not often enough. I mean, I was speaking to a kindergarten in Lviv. It's actually a kindergarten with the first four grades of primary school attached to it as well. So it's a really big school for about 300 children. And she received a three kilowatt generator from the the regional authority, which she has used to light the school's underground shelter. She feels like that's the priority, that they have lighting underground when the air raids alarms go off. And aside from that, you know, she can't cook for the children. But in the preschool, you know, the children are too young to be at home and sometimes their parents simply have to put them there because they need to go to work. So she's just having to tell parents to wrap them up really warm because that's the only option they've got. Um, I managed to connect her with another charity based here in the UK called UK to Ukraine, which is an initiative. This charity is, again, just gathering up generators that people are donating in the country or maybe giving money to, for them to buy new new generators. And they're shipping them over there. They've shipped about 200 generators into Ukraine so far. Um, I just wanted to mention that that's something that other listeners could also consider doing, is either donating to that charity or perhaps maybe you have a generator lying around in your garage somewhere that you don't need. You know, large or small, it could, it could help somebody. Well, thank you very much, uh, Gabby. Francis and Tom, you've been listening to that conversation. Do you have any questions for Gabby? Thanks, Gabby. As you've spoken about, wars often have a generational impact. I'm just wondering if there are any examples of similar conflicts of the past where research has been conducted into the long-term impacts on education and on a whole population as a consequence of education disrupted due to war. And if so, what, what kind of findings do we see? Um, thanks, Francis. Well, without having looked into this prior to this conversation, I know, for example, um, there's a lot of research that's been done on Holocaust survivors, a lot of interesting studies that show that, that trauma is passed on from generation to generation. And that's actually, at first, I think there was a, a belief that it, it was something genetic, that you could actually inherit the trauma from parents in some way, because the way I've talked to you about the, the way that brain development is affected by trauma it can actually change the kind of chemical balance of your body but later there, there's actually been more research to show that actually they think it's to, due to something called secondary trauma so it's parents who are talking about their traumatic experiences and childhoods as the child is growing up around them perhaps even quite unintentionally the child will just absorb that and and come to believe that they live in a world where the universe is against them and they develop traumatic symptoms as well in terms of education again I, I don't have anything specific with me here today but I mean, you need to look at a country like Sierra Leone. That's a country that I've I've done a lot of work on, and there, you know, you've got generations of children that haven't been educated, and they um, they are living in poverty. <laughs> and poverty is actually something that I I just did want to mention today as well, because this is also a risk now in Ukraine. You know, we're seeing so much aid going to that country and so much help. But um, both UNICEF and Save the Children warned that as this war goes on beyond this first year, 
there is going to be an increasing number of families falling into poverty. So poverty in Ukraine is going to look different to poverty in a country like Sierra Leone. It might mean that they can't afford a laptop, which means the child can't connect to do their education. But that could have devastating consequences for their future. Thank you. And just one more from me, if I may. We've heard accounts now for several months of children who have been kidnapped by Russia and taken well to areas in Crimea and uh, and Russia itself from Ukraine. I just wonder if you've come across any accounts of that yourself or if you've got any thoughts on that. Actually, there is a website that the government has set up in Ukraine that that publishes photographs of the children that have gone missing, which is really it's really devastating. Um, these are the stats that I saw back in November that said that at least 7,343 children had been deported to Russia and 236 were missing since the start of the invasion. That was from Ukraine's Office of the Ombudsman. If you look on the National Police of Ukraine website, there are also statistics there about the number that are missing. Um, one way that the Ukrainian government tried to stop this from happening is that when the war began, it immediately halted international adoptions. So actually, this is something you could look at from the American perspective. There used to be a lot of Americans that would adopt children from Ukraine. You can't do that anymore. And that was just a way to try and stop this from happening. But I think this is an issue that, that really needs more exploring. It's obviously really hard because we can't get into those parts of Russia where those children might be. But I have heard people talking about the fact that these children might never come back. You know, they've been given new names. Um, they've been told stories about their own families or what's happened to them, which, you know, a child will believe because they have no reason not to. It might be that in a decade or 20 years' time, we will find these children again. But that, you know, it's a really horrendous, horrendous and sad thing of this war. Well, thank you, Gabby, and thank you, Francis. Um, Tom, I think you've just got one quick question. But Gabby, could you point me to any... Any lessons from the pandemic that have been exported into the situation in Ukraine now, particularly I'm thinking in regards to online learning for the children, anything that that either has been shown to be particularly good or or possibly conversely, that the experience in Ukraine has shown that we got it wrong during the pandemic, if that were ever to happen again. And just... Secondly, you, did you say that we in the UK are not able to send direct through laptops for Ukraine.com because we are no longer in the EU? Could you just clear that bit up, please? Thank you. Thanks, Tom. On, on the laptop, so yeah, so it's just because the way that this organisation is delivering the laptop is through a mechanism that is an EU mechanism, so the UK can't access that anymore. That's not to say that maybe there are some organisations in the UK that are delivering laptops to Ukraine. Um, I, I can't say that I've done a full survey of everything that's possible, so hopefully there is a way to get them out there. It doesn't have to be through that that, that charity. Um, and yes, lessons from COVID. Um, well, the first thing to say is that, in a way, it was helpful. Except at the beginning of the war, a lot of teachers said to me it was so easy just to snap back onto online learning because they had everything set up, all the mechanisms were there, and they had the materials ready, um, and the children were kind of used to it. So in that sense, COVID actually did Ukraine a favour because it, it meant that it wasn't something completely new and weird to start learning online. Um, with young children... Um, I know what um, UNICEF did with um, another a woman called Salomia Bojkovic who, who runs the preschool in Lviv they started to do more um, preschool videos because they realised that there was a bit of a gap there for the youngest children um, sometimes early education is sort of misunderstood, it, you know, you think the child is fine just sitting at home playing but actually they do need some sort of interaction and and beginning to learn about language and alphabet and that kind of thing so they, they put out something called NUMO which was a, a new channel for preschool aged children to try and make sure that those preschoolers were getting um, some more help because you know if you think about it the older children can do online learning the younger children can't do it quite so much so this is just a kind of one more way to try and help them um, I can't sort of think of any examples of any mistakes that anyone's brought up um, I think like I described the problem is you can't do so much face-to-face -face continuous teaching online because of the, the power su supply. So you are sending, a teacher is sending materials to a child online, they're opening and they're going away, they're working on it themselves and they're coming back again. I think ideally you would be doing face-to-face -face virtual teaching the whole time. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dom and Francis, for your questions. Um, 
Thank you very much, Gabby, for joining us. I, th- I think it was, it's was it been really good to hear from you again, to hear some of your updates and just to understand a little bit how the situation has changed and in so many places, as you've described, actually got worse for the children of Ukraine. So thank you for bringing us that. And for all of our listeners, we will have some details of, of contacts and charities in the show notes, um, in the so in the description on the podcast apps and on the YouTube video. Um, Dom Nichols, can I come to you? There's just a few more updates we need to mention before we go to our final thoughts. Dom Nichols. Yeah, just a couple of quick updates uh, didn't really fit earlier on. So just a quick sort of bullet points here. Um, so we're talking about fighter jets for Ukraine. Dmitry Kuleba, Ukraine's foreign minister, has said it's only, quote, psychological barriers, unquote, that's preventing the transfer. And he drew the parallel to the debate over um, HIMARS and some of these other weapons that we that we were discussing earlier in the war about how they were f- the largely, I think, self-imposed lines of what's escalatory and what's provocative and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we got over that with with HIMARS and um, air defence stuff, the harm missiles, the, you know, the anti-radiation missiles and so on and so forth. I, th- I think we probably will do again with, with fighter jets, but Dmitry Kaleba is just making the point there. And then just finally... Uh, Talk about Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's defence minister. We said yesterday there was some question about his position, whether or not as part of President Zelensky's anti-corruption drive that swept out Mr. Reznikov's deputy and a number of other officials from the Ministry of Defence, whether or not he was going to have to go as well. He was there was talk that he was going to be moved in to be Minister of Strategic Procurement. Um, and that uh, Mr. Badanov, who's head of the military intelligence, would would take on either take on the defence ministry as well, or just move sideways. So that was yesterday. There has been no more update. President Zelensky did not mention, did not talk about any of this last night on his uh, nightly address. And just uh, well, three hours ago, Mr. Reznikov tweeted he said the following holding the line thank you for all your support as well as constructive criticism we draw conclusions we continue the reforms even during the war we are strengthening the defense and working for victory glory to ukraine he said so i I know i think you can read into that that he is he's referring to it thanks for your support um and constructive criticism we're drawing conclusions continuing the reforms doesn't sound as though he's going anywhere there but um events in this regard are slightly opaque and i think will become clearer during the, over the course of this week well thank you very much uh, dom francis and gabby uh, i think we've just got time for our very final thoughts so can i start with you francis Dirtley? thanks david to be honest i'm still reeling from some of the numbers gabby was quoting earlier especially with regard to kidnapped children but i wanted to end with a reflection on the military situation I think it's really important not to underestimate how challenging the next few weeks could be. And I I stress could underlined and underscored because we don't know what's going to happen. But it is a fact that Russia is pouring troops into eastern Ukraine ahead of this new offensive that Don was talking about earlier. It has withdrawn to positions of relative strength in preparation and has been grinding down the Ukrainians to soften them up for the assault to come. Russia have taken heavy losses, but they're losses that they believe they can sustain due to the mass mobilizations that we've been covering for months now. The Western tanks, of course, are coming, but they're coming rather late and probably too late to have an impact in this battle. And with so many men and resources at their disposal, Russia will, of course, be able to sustain perhaps higher casualty rates than Ukraine will at this phase of the war. So I just say all this not to be pessimistic, but rather to say I think it's better that we overestimate and not underestimate the possibility of Russian success because if we don't and there are successes then the shock of it could risk dislodging some of the Western resolve that has been built up now over many many months. The worst thing that could happen is if we see you know, apocalyptic headlines of Russian advances going all the way across Western media as if it was the biggest shock in the world, when actually, you know, wars are long things and there are back and forth. And I just think there needs to be more of an acknowledgement that that is a possibility. Um, Only then, realistically, can Ukraine and the West rationalise the best course of action, ultimately, is by thinking and acknowledging what those different outcomes could potentially be in the coming weeks. Well, thank you, Francis. Uh, that's an interesting perspective, and I, I look forward to you uh, explaining a little bit more in, in the next few weeks. I think that's fascinating. Um, Dom Nichols, can I come to you next? Sure. Well, I'll just say, just finish um, that point there from Francis. I do take those points, but I'm, I'm, I think after the experiences from the West in Iraq and Afghanistan, we are 
after the initial flurry, when it, let's say Russia makes a great breakthrough, there will be you know alarmist headlines and so on and so forth. I think cooler heads will steady the ship, and we will remember that we had, um, if not mass, we certainly had technical capability and a lot of money. And it didn't work out brilliantly in either of those two particular adventures. So I think the stronger argument of who has the stomach for it and the the moral uh, right to keep going, I think, is is going to be very powerful. Um, and I don't think it will just come down to mass. Now, I mean, mass is is hugely important. Of course, it is. But I, I think I, I think we will um, we will be possibly looking at some of the same lessons as i said from iraq afghanistan but through the different through the other side of the lens this time um yeah break break enough on that um my final thought is i'm uh, i'm away i'm off on my travels uh for the next day or so with um with a defense secretary here can't say where or what um but hopefully we'll speak to you tomorrow and and if not then fairly confident i'll be able to speak to you on Thursday, although probably from a noisy airport somewhere. But yeah, updates from the sort of diplomatic side of um, European efforts in the next couple of days. Thank you, Dom and Francis. Uh, Gabby, as our guest, would you like the very uh, final words? What would you want our our listeners to go away and think about? Thanks, David. Um, I thought I might just leave um, a small thought in the listeners' minds. Um, So when I was in Ukraine, I went to visit an orphanage and um, a lot of teenagers had recently moved this orphanage in Lviv from an orphanage in the Donbass. So these were children who had been living in a state of war since 2014. And the lady who ran that orphanage was telling me just how hard it was to look after them. They had so many problems. Um, they were really struggling. Um, it made me realise that, that this is the result of years of war on a child, that the, the children that we have now in the country that, that are young will grow up to be like these teenagers that were were really struggling so much. Um, so I, there's lots and lots of things I haven't talked about today that, that are hurting children. There's lots of different situations in Ukraine that are bad. And I guess my two final thoughts are one, no child is experiencing a real childhood in Ukraine right now. And the second one is that even when the war is over, um, the, the problems are not over. This is going to carry on for, for years to come and it, it needs a lot of attention. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and Chelsea Henshaw. And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.